take out your Bibles. We are going to uh, continue our um, our sermon series in the book of Habakkuk. Today's sermon is entitled Revival. What what does that what does that mean when when I say that? What do you think of when I say that word? Revival is one of those words, kind of like tolerance, that's used one way but means something else. So in our day and age, the word tolerance is used like this. You have to accept everything that I do. And if you don't, you're wrong. That's the modern definition of tolerance. Tolerance is actually, um, I disagree with you, yet I love and respect your decision. We disagree. Um, I do not hate you. You do not hate me. We just simply have a difference. And I tolerate that. Revival is used in much the same way. Revival, some people say we want revival. And probably that has been spoken of this week and, and, and this Sunday will be spoken of the most, uh, uh, more than any other topic. But what, what does that mean to you, revival? What does that mean? Some people, it conjures up images of a, a big tents and open fields with, with hay flying around and sweltering heats and preachers that, that go well into the night and, and people giving their lives to Jesus just, just person after person after person after person. For some, revival is, is, is uh, a group of people or, or just a couple of individuals who get up and then go and serve others. Those who are in need, those are, who are homeless and in jail and, and who are less fortunate, who are widows and orphans and that sort of thing. For some, revival just means I want to feel excited when I go to church. I want to be so overwhelmed emotionally. I want to have this experience that, that I can talk about and, and reminisce about for days and weeks and maybe even months to come. And from what I've seen from folks who see revival in that light, that will keep them going for years because it becomes romanticized and that sort of thing. What does revival mean to you? Habakkuk, in chapter 3, verse 1 of the Bible named after him because he wrote it, Habakkuk has heard from the Lord. Chapter 1 starts off with, with Habakkuk asking God a question. Why are bad things happening to good people? Why am I looking out upon the nation of Israel? Why am I watching her enemies come and destroy your people, the good people? Why are the bad guys winning? If you've ever watched a superhero movie, you know bad guys lose, good guys win, right? Ask any five-year-old boy. They will tell you bad guys lose, good guys win, right? Habakkuk says, we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. You're on our side. Why are they winning? And in case you have an altered view of who God is, God responds to his kids in the same way a father responds to their son or daughter. My son and daughter come and ask me questions all the time. I don't just remain silent unless, of course, I'm distracted because I'm human and something's going on. Um, they ask me a question. I do my best to answer them. I'm faulty. I'm imperfect. I don't know everything, and so I have to just give them the best answer I can or Google it. Right? Why is the sky blue? I don't know. Let's go get on Google. God the Father is like that, but way better, infinitely better. We ask him questions. We come to him, um, some would say, in boldness. I just say we come in truth. We just take off the mask and ask the questions that are really troubling our heart. Why is this happening? That's what Habakkuk did. And surprisingly, or it shouldn't be surprisingly, uh, Habakkuk gets a response from God. God basically says, if you think this is bad, wait till you see what you're about to see. True or false, if you came to me and said, Pastor Tony, why are things so bad? And I answered you, oh, wait, they're going to get worse. Is that a happy answer? Or is that a, an answer that you don't like so much? Let's try to keep it civil. I'd say that for... For your response, you'd probably not want to ask me that question again. You'd come to me and say, oh, if that's your answer, I don't want to ask any more questions of you because this is not warm and fuzzy. Today's sermon um, is going to be like a sweater. You know, it's not summertime, but you wouldn't know it to look outside. But um, sweaters, I love sweaters. I love sweatshirts. 
And sometimes you get a sweater that's like really soft and awesome. It fits perfectly. It's, it's, it's almost it, – it's nice enough to go to Walmart, but it's also great to lounge around in at home. It's like a sweatshirt. It's like a warm hug all day long. But imagine that same sweatshirt made out of burlap. Not so great, right? Itchy, rough, same basic thing, but it's going to be more of a challenge. Today's sermon is going to be more of a challenge for you. Um, as a church, we, don't, we can't afford to not be challenged. We can't afford to not be continuously checked by Jesus day in and day out, to have his word just kind of knock us out of the stupor that we find ourselves in so often. And so while this sermon might be a little rough around the edges, I want to assure you that truth can sometimes be that way because that's how we get refined. You don't sand a piece of wood with a blank sheet of paper or a piece of notebook paper. What do you do? You take the sandpaper and you start with really coarse stuff and then you just work it and then you you slowly work down that fine grit to where it's almost smooth but you're still taking off edges. Sermons are meant to, to redirect us, correct us, but refine us and sanctify us as well, or to lead us in sanctification. And so for Habakkuk, he's being sanctified. I mean, he's been told stuff that he doesn't want to hear. What do you mean things are going to get worse? God explains that they're going to be taken captive by a nation called Babylon. That they're going to come in, that they're going to take over, and this is going to be part of this discipline that God is going to execute upon the people of Israel. They are going to, for decades, suffer at the hands of different world powers before they are eventually restored. And so, rightly, Habakkuk is like, whoa, my goodness. God then continues and says, but now don't get too hard-hearted. I'm going to deal with the, with the Babylonians or the Chaldeans as well. See, the Chaldeans are the type of people who are different than the people of God. The Chaldeans, they trusted in themselves. It wasn't that they were anti-God or anti-spiritual. They were very spiritual, um, but there was always a cutoff point. Okay, everything's good, spiritual, but wait a minute. Now it's a big people problem. So you people who are religious, go over here while the adults take care of the real problems like war and, and feeding people and, and just the important things. Um, and God said, because of that, I'm judging them. They, won't, they don't always go off. They may look prosperous, but it's not always going to be that way. It'll take some time, but you'll see it happen. He assures us that um, his word goes out to do what has, he has intended it to do. And at the end of all of this, at the end of this discourse from God, God has quite a lot to say to Habakkuk. At the end of this, Habakkuk has changed. Habakkuk is different. Here's how you know if you've heard from the Lord. If you've ever questioned yourself, is this... Am I hearing God's voice or my voice? If you are unchanged, I would wager that maybe it's your own voice. But if it changes you, I mean, it changes everything about you. It changes you to where people notice and see that in you. Then maybe, just maybe, that was the voice of the Lord that you heard and who has changed you. Habakkuk hears from the Lord and it changes him. The same guy who starts off, why are bad things happening to good people? Same question asked thousands of years later, he's now going to begin to pray and then sing a song. I don't know about you, I love singing. And I'm not the best at it, but I just, I sing all the time. My daughter, she sings all the time. My son, my wife, we just, we're always singing, whether it's just something like, hey, I'm just singing about what I'm doing, or some song. You ever heard that song, Call Me Maybe? Hey, I just met you. That sounds great. We just belt that song out. Like I know I'm I'm gonna have to turn in my man card at this point, but man, when that when that beat comes on, oh yeah, and we just all start singing it. It's like it is like an infectious soundworm that gets into your brain, but man, if you don't sing it, you just don't you don't have a heart. There, I said it. But my point is, we just love to sing. We don't care if it's some silly sugary pop song. We just want to sing. You know, Johnny Cash comes on, and oh, it's. Dad, it's Johnny Cash. I know. Let's turn it up, crank. Just listen to Johnny Cash. Just love singing. We often sing to further express these emotions that sometimes we just can't get out of us. We just start singing a song, whether we wrote the song or somebody else wrote the song. We sing it because it better exemplifies how we feel 
internally. And that's what Habakkuk does. He goes from a prayer to a song. And here's how this starts off for Habakkuk. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says this, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shiganoth. And you guys can look that up if you don't think I'm saying it right, and you can say it next time we have church. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. It's not that Habakkuk has been put in his place as creation, speaking to creator. It's that Habakkuk has met the one true God, and he's realized we're not the good people. We're the bad people, and we need revival. Biblically speaking, do you know who needs revival? Those who are dead. Revival, if you admit that you need revival in your life, either individually or corporately, it is because something has died. Something is dead. Something somewhere has sucked the life out of you and us, and we need the Lord, the Lord to come in with the spiritual defibrillator, if you will, and just shock us. Boom! Get us back out of that, that slumber and wake us up. There are a lot of things facing our nation today, right? Um, at the end of this service, we're going to take a few moments, uh, and I want to take some of your questions in case you have any questions. Just a short uh, Q&A session. Um, you can do it publicly or meet me afterwards, but we'll do like maybe 15 minutes here in the sanctuary. But we have to admit something as a church. Um, we're dead. We're dead. If we need revival, we're dead. If we know something's wrong, something's dead. And we, we can't make it alive. The life business all comes from God. When he created Adam from the dust, what did he do? He breathed life into Adam, gave him life. Life comes from the Lord, whether it be physical life or spiritual life. But how do we get that? Habakkuk wants revival. He wants revival for the Jewish nation. He realizes, man, we're the problem. When the Bible speaks of revival, it speaks about the Christians going back to God. It is not fair of us to look upon the world that does not have Christ and expect them to be Christians, meaning, meaning if they have not been filled with the Holy Spirit, we have and we struggle to conquer our sin, right? But we look at them who have not the Holy Spirit and we expect them to fulfill the Word of God. It doesn't work that way. God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we might walk according to that Spirit. If you do not have that Spirit, then it's probably impossible to walk that way for any length of time. So if we want revival, it starts with the church. It starts with us. It starts with me individually as a person. Then it starts with us as a church or a family. And then it keeps going, the church, the big C church, the church globally or nationally. We need revival. That's absolutely true. But revival is more than just an experience. It's more than just an emotion. Some folks, and rightfully so, I don't blame you, they don't want to come to church and be bored for an hour or two hours. They want songs that are both lively and slow. They want songs that are new and old. You know, a message that's long and short, loud and quiet. I mean, you see where I'm going with this. We, we, everybody wants something out of church. And I would, I would just submit to you that's sort of the wrong way to look at church. How, I hope they do everything that I want today. I don't know many marriages that, success, that are successful that way. I don't know how a church family would be successful that way. The most successful churches you see are the ones where everybody comes together. What can I do? How can I help? Where can I serve? I'm hurting. Oh, can I help you with that? Can I come alongside you and pray with you? I have no idea what you're going through, but I, but I just want you to know I'm here for you, that Jesus loves you. That Jesus is here to comfort you. Oh, I'm, in, I'm, I'm committing this sin. Oh, you know, that's, that's, the Lord's not cool with that. Let me show you where he says that, and let me show you the truth, and let me love you, no matter what your response is. You might disagree with me, but man, I'm still going to love you. And you're going to have to disagree, me, disagree with me through that love. Church, if we want to see revival, like true revival, more than just experience and emotion, 
it's going to start with Jesus. There are folks that come into church and they want to, they want something tangible, something to feel. I want to, I want to see something to the point where you see churches where, where they, they find gold dust in their hands and like, oh, the Lord, gold dust in my hand. And, and they start, we call them gold chasers. Nothing biblical about it. Nothing, personally, nothing exciting about it. I don't know how that changes anything. Uh, my, my marriage is crumbling, but I have gold dust in my hands. Whoop-de-doo. You know, I have cancer, but there's gold dust in my hands. Woo! Doesn't make any sense. The other night I was preaching uh, on a Wednesday night, and all of a sudden I saw this gold dust in my hands. I was like, holy moly. And I, and I was like, what is, what is this? Looking at myself, I'm all iridescent. And I look, it was the it was the stuff on the side of my Bible coming off. I'm like, wow, oh gosh, that's all I need is somebody to see my hands and, and think I'm one of those. But but what births that is that need for something tangible. Folks who pray and, and then all of a sudden they have a spirit animal and they start they start praising God by barking like a dog clucking like a chicken. You ever notice nobody has a spiritual animal that's like the sloth? Well, okay, I take that back. There are a lot of people who might have that. But uh, but it's never the bi- it's always the lion or the I don't know, it's always something big and majestic. It's never like the spiritual penguin. It's never the spiritual dolphin. You know, it's never anything like that. It's always something big. Your spirit animal is the lion. And you're like, and I'll say, roar! And it's like, what are you doing? Like, God gave you a voice to worship him, not to act like an animal. Come on, son. But the point is, that's birthed from people who just, who aren't satisfied with, with just trusting and having faith in God. No, I must, I gotta have something. I gotta have something to, to experience and feel and go home and explain. And, 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 and for some, it's not just a selfishness, it's because they're hurting so badly. And for them, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk down to them and make fun of them because some folks just they want to, they want to be healed, and they see a glimmer of hope, and they think maybe that's it, and they chase after it. But what it ends up being is a trick from Satan. Satan doesn't need your eyes on him; he just needs your eyes off of Christ. And if that's a ta- some weird, tangible experience, it, even in a church setting, I mean, that's he'll do that. Revival is admitting first that we are dead and then crying out to the Lord. When, when the nation of Israel, when it's time for them to turn back, the other nations aren't turning back. When we are told to, to walk by the Spirit, God's talking to the Christian, the Christ follower. Now, I don't come to you today presenting to you a formula to make revival happen. That's another fault of, of humans, especially American humans. Give us the formula. Give us the five-step process to revival. Give us the three-step process because those two extra steps are just going to take too long. Give me the three-step program to bring revival to the land. There's no formula. In the same way that your, your being born again was not the result of a formula. You being born again was an act, a miracle of God, causing you to be alive, to be awakened from spiritual death. To see Jesus as more than just how he's portrayed in the media or how he's taught traditionally, but the Jesus of the Bible. Most people don't have arguments with the Jesus of the Bible. They have an argument with what he has said. When he has told us to not do this or to do this or to do that, that's when we begin to kick against him. And Christians do the same thing. Everybody loves that God is love, and everybody loves love your neighbor above yourself, but nobody loves stay away from sexual immorality. Nobody loves don't be a drunkard. Nobody loves um, you know, love your enemy. Nobody loves those scriptures that challenge us, that they just challenge us. They force us to be someone that we're not quite ready to be because it comes at a cost that we're not ready to pay. But if you're like me, you desperately long to see revival, true revival. You don't have to you don't have to be loud and excited and boisterous to be revived. So if you wake up tomorrow, Pastor Tony's right, I need revival. So I'm gonna be excited and I'm gonna carry my Bible and I'm gonna be really loud and I'm gonna I'm gonna retweet everything or I'm gonna share everything on Facebook that comes through that even has remote 
resemblance to Jesus. I'm just going to share and share, and people are just going to know who I am. Okay, that's not revival. That's obnoxious. Okay? In our battle, we cannot fight fire with fire. Not in that sense. We cannot fight dead obnoxiousness with spiritual obnoxiousness. We cannot fight those who are snarky in their death with spiritual snarkiness, if that's even a word. We have to rise above. We have to be different. We have to be like Jesus and go into these places and be light where it is dark. We must stand for truth and we must stand for love and we must stand for Christ. And none of that should be translated as a, a, a license to be obnoxious. Now, some will see us as that. No matter, our, we can come in, we can have a tray full of muffins. We can give them uh, a gift card to Walmart, buy them pizza for dinner. We can rub their back. We can, we can knit them mittens. We can do all sorts of these fun, nice things. And they'll say, you Christians are so obnoxious with your sweaters and your muffins. Like, okay, all right, fine. I guess I'm... I guess I'm going to lay off the niceness, right? But those people will be few and far between. The most you'll find are those who, who somehow see that and want to know why. Why are you in a world where it's kill or be killed? Why are you allowing yourself to be killed for my sake? Why are you dying by serving someone who will never serve you back? Because that's what Jesus has shown us to serve and to love those who probably will never love us or serve us back. The point is not in receiving back from those who you serve. You're serving because Jesus first served you. You're loving because Jesus first loved you. And so revival is not about a formula, but I do want to share with you one of my favorite passages of all the Bible. It, it's a long passage, so bear with me, but it's one of my favorite stories and one of my favorite men of all the Bible. It's a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was awesome. Okay, Nehemiah needed Jesus just like the rest of us, but Nehemiah, man, if I, if I was going to be any character in the Bible, if I was going to be any person and live their life, it might be Nehemiah, at least the fun part. The, the persecution part, maybe not so much. But the fun part, yeah. Nehemiah is taken away in the captivity of Israel. Israel is just torn apart. People go everywhere, scattered and dispersed. Babylon takes over the world. Nehemiah finds himself as the cupbearer to the king. The king, Artaxerxes, has a guy who tastes his wine and his food before he eats it to make sure he's not being poisoned. So Nehemiah, if he should die eating this food, the king lives. It's a great, sounds like a great gig to have, right? Um, Nehemiah is from Jerusalem. It's his hometown. And... He hears these reports about his hometown and realizes it's just destroyed. And it becomes his heart's desire to rebuild it. And so he begins when he's off his cupbearer shift. When he goes home, he prays and he fasts. And he starts making lists. What do I need? How much timber do I need? How much, how much or, or lumber do I need? How much help do I need? How much money or gold will I need to rebuild Jerusalem? So he's got all these charts and figures, very organized. I think that's why I admire him so much because I'm the least organized person I know. He's just got it all together. And then there's one day where he's standing before the king and he's downtrodden. Now this is enough to get you killed. You've got to understand, in front of a king, if you're not happy, how dare you? How dare you not be satisfied in front of your king? Off with his head. He finds favor with the king and the king says, hey, what's up? Nehemiah, what's going on? <laughs> you have to imagine that, for, side note, Nehemiah probably was... Drink a lot of wine. Just throw that out there. I think that's funny. Just kind of a revelation right now. Just sipping wine all day. Um, at this moment, he's able to just pray this quick internal prayer. God help me. And he pours it out there. My hometown's destroyed. I want to go back and build it. I need to take a leave of absence. He's basically a slave. and He's saying, I need to take a leave of absence to go rebuild my city. And sure enough, rather than meeting obstinance or how dare you, he meets... Yeah, okay, you can go. And let me give you the wood, and let me give you the money, and let me give you the people, and let me give you all kinds of stuff. Now, good thing for Nehemiah, he was already planning all this. 
He knew exactly when the king said, what do you need? He's like, well, let me tell you what I need. Here's my charts and figures and my pie graphs. And let me show you exactly what I need, how much time it will take. He goes back to Jerusalem. He rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. Have you seen our government? They can't do anything in 52 days. I don't think they work 52 continuous days throughout the whole year. That's easy jokes. You guys can giggle about those later. 52 days. And Nehemiah takes with him not men who are just like him. One of the, if you go through the list of men that went with, with Nehemiah, one of them was a jeweler. So my, But that tells me is not that this man was, was any different than the rest, but his hands probably weren't ready for building walls. Maybe they were ready for working uh, with heat and refining and molding and all that stuff, but he wasn't quite uh, ready for building walls. One guy was a perfumer. Now, you know that guy got made fun of, right? Here comes Jimmy the perfumer. What do you smell like today? You know, just stuff like that. But no, he came along. He brought his daughters. They all worked on the wall. 52 days. It culminates with this worship session. It culminates with, with this massive church day. They start at like, I don't know, 3 o'clock in the morning. Maybe it's more like 6, but I'm just going to be embellished. Early in the morning, they build this huge platform so Ezra, the priest, can go up there and preach to the people, not down to them, but before you know, electronics, this is how they got everybody to hear at the same time. And this was them seeking revival. And here's what you're going to see through all this, okay? Let me read it, I'll point it out, and then we're going to pray and be done for the day. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. Go back, read Nehemiah. It's only like 9 or 12 chapters long. Read it during the week. Hopefully you'll see the amazing story that, that has, has helped so many people understand the sovereignty of God over uh, millennia. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him, Metahiah, Shema, I have an uncle Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on the right hand, and Padiah, and Mishael, and Malkijah, and Hashem, and Hashbanana, and Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. You know, I, I really wish the Lord would have put in like a, a Todd in there, just to throw us off, and Todd, like that would just be weird. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it all, uh, opened it all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their hands and uh, worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, and Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, uh, they read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then they said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this is the day, this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. It's a long passage. It's not even the whole book. 
imagine yourself big church setting everybody everywhere hot sun no cover no amplification just a guy in a book and reading and you're bowing down on your face and you're saying amen and you're standing up and you're raising your hands and you're saying amen here's what we see in this and here are here are things i think are absolutely essential to revival i honestly do believe if we have these things and we don't have revival then we're in a lot of trouble but i believe that if we even had like one or two of these i think the landscape of our community would look entirely different here's the first one unity everybody all together same place same time it's not that everybody agreed it's not that everybody was dressed the same it's not that everybody uh did the same type of work there may have been diversity in that way but they all came for the same person per person and that was their god they came united they were together now there's a difference between unity and uniformity uniformity says we all have to look the same sound the same speak the same that's not what the bible's advocating but it does continuously tell us to be united we cannot be separated we cannot be divided and expect true revival we must be united we may not agree on all things but we must agree on jesus you and I may disagree on when we think the rapture is going to happen. We can disagree on that, but we have to agree that Jesus is the one true God, that through him and whom, him alone is salvation found, that he will one day indeed return to take his bride home, the church, and we will be with him forever, and he will be our God, and we will be his people. We absolutely must have unity. Number two is the word. They didn't come and, and, and preach the latest teaching. They didn't come with some other religion's book. They came with the word, with the law of God. Now, to give you some context, in this time here, all they probably had was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. So, so Ezra began to read from the book of Genesis all the way through to, what is it, Deuteronomy? Is that the last one? You guys are probably better Bible scholars than I am. But basically, that's all they read from. Maybe some Psalms, maybe maybe one or the other prophets or something, but but not certainly not the breadth of the Bible that we have today. But they didn't come with all this other stuff. They came with the Word of God. We cannot have true revival without the Word of God. So many people, they argue the Word of God. Their only argument is their emotion. Well, this is what I feel. This is what I feel. Well, I feel I should be the king of you know Australia, but that doesn't change anything. What is the truth? Your feelings might be true. Your feelings might not be true. We have to have something to measure it against. The word of God becomes our, our, our ruler or our measurement or the standard by which we measure our feelings and emotions and what we think should be. Well, I think that um, when you get to heaven, um, all you're going to find ask, be asked is how you handle the gifts God gave you. That sounds really nice, but that's not true. Unless the only gift we're talking about is Jesus. In walking down the street, Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? That's the question. Who do you say that I am? When we get to, to be before, before the Lord in the great white throne judgment, it will be all about how we received Christ. As Christians, our works will be measured and all that, but we, if we are found in Christ, then we have his righteousness and we have God's forgiveness. We absolutely must have the word because the stuff I just said, we wouldn't know without the word. I, I love, I, I get into these, I don't want to call them arguments, we get into discussions and people say, well, I've never read the Bible, but if, if that's you, you've lost the argument. I've never read the Bible, but here's what I think. Okay, well, what does the Bible say? That's what I care about. People so often this week have been quoting Matthew 7.1. If you don't know what Matthew 7, 1 right now is, but you have said this week, thou shalt not judge, then that's a problem. Because that's, that's kind of the context of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, 1. So many people know those words, but don't even know where to find it in the Bible. And we don't, how can we live by that if we don't even know it? It's somewhat hypocritical. There must be the word. Number three is worship. They all got together. They all were standing and raising hands and, and they were all saying amen together, once again being uh, united. They were all worshiping God. 
Ezra was exalted not because Ezra was so great, but because he wanted everybody to hear, and everybody just raised their praises to God. They came and they worshiped and they bowed. That's why we, we sing songs and we encourage you to raise your hands and to, to come to the altar. Not, not so you just have an experience, but that you'd worship the Lord. And that you would be changed in that moment to meet the one true God through, through this act of worship. They had agreement, going back to the amen, amen. Saying amen means it is so. So if I say Jesus is Lord and you say amen, you're basically saying it is so. I agree with you. Amen. That's what these people kept shouting. They would read Genesis. Amen. And Exodus. Amen. And Leviticus. Amen. And Numbers. And amen. And I don't know how they did that in Numbers. But in Deuteronomy, amen. They all agreed, yes, this is the word of God. He's the one true God who has spoken to us through these individuals and through these experiences. We agree. They agreed on the most important things. How many of you love Apple and how many of you love Android? That's not fair. You guys all raise your hand at the same time. So some of you love Apple, some of you love Android. We pray for you. But those of you who love Apple would look at the ones who love Android and say, you're, no, that's crazy and vice versa. We can disagree on something so silly. I love Friends. I love Seinfeld. We can disagree on that sort of thing. I like hiking. I like being inside the house with air conditioning and, a, and a, you know, a PlayStation. We can disagree on these things and have there be no eternal consequence. We cannot disagree on Jesus, though. We call these close-handed issues. Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life, died a, a perfect death, conquered sin and death, has, has been given as the propitiation for our sins, he has gone to be with the Father, seated at his right hand, ruling and reigning. He has sent the Holy Spirit to indwell those who have faith. He has filled them with spiritual gifts to serve and to love one another. He loves his church. He will come back for his church, and we will rule and reign with him forever. These are things that we cannot disagree on. Well, is Jesus tall or short? You can disagree on that one all day long. Oh, coffee's evil. No, it's not. We can disagree on that one all day long. They're actually... People who think coffee's evil, we call them those people because <laughs> coffee's an absolute good. My point is this: we can disagree on these small things, and if you are if you are becoming angered and filled with this towards somebody for something that doesn't matter eternally, that's a check. Okay, bring that down a little bit. That doesn't matter eternally. It will not matter how many cups of coffee I did or did not drink. When I get to be with Jesus, if it does, let's hope he's grading on a curve, <laughs> right? Because we're drinking lots of coffee. Verses 7 and 8 says that these group of men with names that we can hardly pronounce, that they had clear direction that as Ezra spoke, as this massive sermon went on, and, and maybe people couldn't hear or didn't quite understand, these other men went out and said, hey, do you understand what's going on right now? Let me, show you, let me show you in the Word what's going on. Let me explain this to you. Let me repeat what he said and kind of help you. Do you have any questions right now? And they just went out and made sure that everybody was on the same page. Made sure that if there was anybody who didn't have an understanding of what was going on, that they had a clear understanding before they left. Okay, you don't understand what's going on in Genesis right now? See, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, is that what he said? We thought he said something else. Okay, got it. Right, thank you so much. And they move on to somebody else and, and help out that person. We, I love preaching and teaching the Bible so that I can help people understand who God is. I hate I, I use social media, so it's kind of hypocritical for me to say, but I hate social media because so many stories and false things about Jesus get perpetuated so quickly. It's like a fire you just can't put out sometimes. I hate that because so many people are reading garbage about Jesus and going, yeah. That's why I'm not a Christian. It's like, duh, you don't even you don't even get it. You could do the same thing with cheese, and you'd have people going, oh, that's why I don't eat cheese. You're missing out on cheese. Yes, cheese is good. <laughs> yeah, I got Vincent on my side. Right on. But they made sure everybody had clear direction. 
I love when people come and ask me questions about Jesus, not because, not because I have all the answers, but I want to make sure that they know. And if I don't know the answer, then let's go back to the Bible. Let's study this together. I'm never offended. I'm never, I'm never like, oh, I can't talk to that person. They're going to ask more questions about Jesus. Like, I'll chase you. Hey, do you want to know more about Jesus? No, I'm good. No, I can tell you some more. No, I got to go home now. Are you sure? Let me tell you about the Trinity. Like, I, I would just love to have those conversations. Those are the ones where I have the conversations and I go home and have them all over again with my wife. I guess this is what I said, and this is what they said, and they had this question. I never thought of that before, but then, then I thought of this, and they thought of that. It was awesome. And those are the kind of uh, things I like to do. I learned that from my pastor. My pastor used to, I'd go meet with him like on a Tuesday night at like 8 o'clock, and we'd at 9 say, okay, we got to go. And we'd go outside, and there was a side door to the church, and there was this light, and then all of a sudden I'd say, let me ask you this question. And we'd stand there for two hours. Moths buzzing around our head because there's a light and, and, and hot summer nights or cold winter nights. And we'd just stand there asking. We'd have to just answer these other questions. We could have gone inside, but we just got so caught up in the conversation that we had to just know what was true and what was not. We need to have clear direction. Our goal at South Bay is that you would know the Word of God. Now we're going to read the word, and we're going to experience Jesus, and it's going to challenge. We're going to, well, what do you mean this or that? We've got to understand this is bigger than our little heads, that God's bigger than, than our minds. But he has revealed himself to us through Jesus, and he is here to be known, and we need clear direction. Number six, there was more worship. They worshiped, and they got clear direction. And what did that cause? More worship. Oh, man, they fell down again. They raised their hands again, shouted amen again, and just worshiped the Lord all the more. Verse 7 says there was sorrow. I believe sorrow is absolutely essential to repentance, I think. Or not repentance, I'm sorry, revival. I think that if, if you are not moved to tears because your brother or sister or even a non-believer has chosen death over life, you got to go back to the Lord and ask for forgiveness and say, Lord, change me in this. If you're looking upon something, someone and happy that they might end up in hell one day, there is a problem. These people, they heard the word and they knew something was wrong. They made them sorrowful. Just as a side note, these weren't the same people who were exiled from Israel. They were the children and the grandchildren of those people. They themselves did not cause the sin that got them judged or got them uh, dis disciplined, rather. But they knew that they were part of the problem. That while their sin wasn't the one that put the final nail in the coffin, they sinned nonetheless. When they heard the word of God being preached, it cut to their heart because they were open. But truthfully, the word of God is going to cut one of two ways. It's going to, it's going to just break your heart or it's going to harden your heart. It has the power to do both. And much of that has to do with pride and has to do with experience and that sort of thing. But but ultimately, if your heart is hard, or excuse me, when your heart is hard and you hear the word of God, often you kick against it. When you hear that you're a sinner, you say, No, I'm not. But for those with a soft heart, they would hear, Yeah, and you have no idea how big of a sinner I am. You don't even know. And Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. You argue with him. No, I'm the chief of sinners. I have sinned more than you, Paul. You shook a snake off your arm, and you survived a shipwreck. But I can't stop looking at porn. Like that, I win the chief sinner award, not you. That's a soft heart. Hard heart says, no, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I sinned, but I do a lot of great things. And a hard heart. And that's just going to take more time. But if that's you, let that be a warning sign that revival is desperately needed in you. One thing that's not mentioned, but it's exemplified in all of this, repentance. We cannot have revival without repentance. If we are not repentive of our sin, the sin of our church, the sin of our nation, there's, God has no business giving us revival because we're not ready. The, this, everything we read in that half a chapter was, was repentance. They left their old ways and went back to God's ways. 
They left whatever word they were listening to and returned back to the word of God. They left whatever God they were serving and went back to Jehovah God. They left whatever they were united to and became united again with God's people. You will not have the kingdom of God without the kingdom people and the God of that kingdom. You cannot be alone as a Christian. You just simply cannot. And you were not designed to be. This was their repentance. And lastly, you would think naturally repentance and sorrow and worship, everybody's just having a big uh, uh, sob fest. And that's kind of what they're doing. And what's the command from the Lord? No, 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 everybody, everybody get up. Stop crying. Go drink wine and eat food. Like if you're going to get legalistic about a verse in the Bible, I like this one. Go eat the fat. Okay, the fat. Doesn't say go eat the protein. Doesn't say go eat the the stuff that's really healthy for you. Because what do you do at a celebration? What do you do at a party? You don't eat carrots. You don't eat celery. What do you eat? You eat cake. You find new ways to consume cake and pie. And you eat buffalo wing dip. And you eat broccoli salad. And somehow that sneaks in because it's covered in bacon and cheese. You don't. You don't. When you celebrate. You don't hate yourself and eat oatmeal. Nobody celebrates with oatmeal. You ever, you ever celebrate something with oatmeal? Even an oatmeal cookie needs a raisin in it to kind of liven it up a little bit. Eat the fat. Drink the wine. Now, some of you should not be drinking wine. Okay? And I'm dead serious about this. It's, it's, a, it's a trip for you. It's a trigger for you. You should not absolutely. But, man, have a tall glass of sweet tea or something. Have, have apple juice. Have some soda. Oh, but soda will erupt. Whatever. See, just celebrate the Lord. Have a cup of coffee. Just rejoice. Let God forgives you, loves you, wants you, desires you. Celebrate that. And then we get that verse, that, that amazing verse. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Though we might be feeling nothing like the joy because we've gone through the repentance and the sorrow and all that, God wipes away every tear. God lifts us up. God reminds us that we're loved. God reminds us, like the prodigal son, he comes out with the, with the arms and the, and the robe and the ring and the, and the fattened calf and just celebrate. You're home. You're alive. You're revived. You're, you're here. Church, that's right. I don't. I don't care if we're four people and, 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 and we are quiet the whole time as a church. If we love Jesus and we love his word and we love his people, we will change everything about our lives. But I still have problems. Yeah, but you know what? You see Jesus and you know he's going to get you through those problems. The people that I admire most are not the ones with no problems. It's the ones that have Jesus and I watch them go through their problems with Jesus. Those are the people that I think have met the Jesus of the Bible. So I want revival. And you, do you guys want revival? Do you want to be revived? We must admit that we are dead. Say, Jesus, we are dead. You guys sounded dead. Come on. Jesus, we are dead. That was better. Jesus, we are dead. Okay, this is the last time and if you don't if you don't do it right this time I'm going to become a methodist. Jesus, we are dead. Thank you. There it is. Now, we are going to pray for revival. Now, we can't just have a service and pray once for a revi revival. My tongue's too big for my mouth. I can't even pray for revival and uh and then just go home and do nothing. And then next week come and have some other sermon about nothing. We have to begin to pray for this and seek God in this. You know, when we, and I said this earlier, we can't sing songs like surrender and know all the words and not actually surrender. We can't sing holy as the Lord, you know, we stand and lift up our hands while we're like this, or sitting. Have you ever seen somebody sitting, and I'm, if you're physically unable to, not calling you out right now, but there are folks who are physically able, and they sit and sing, we stand and lift up our hands, just like this. Really? When did you stand and lift up your hands? Like earlier when... The thing was going on? Like, when, when were you doing that? I surrender, holding on to the back of this pew, not going anywhere. Like that's, that's, not, that's hypocritical, right? 
It's not really full of integrity. So we want to change. We want to be different. We want to try new things. We want to not be afraid of something just because it's new. We want to stand in love and in truth. We can't buckle on either one of those. You must be full of love. You must be full of truth. You must worship in spirit and in truth. You must be born again of the spirit as you were born of the flesh. And honestly, you know what? I don't even know what we're praying for. Like, I'm asking for a revival. Who knows what that will look like? The Azusa Street Revival, if you've ever read about the Azusa Street Revival of like 1904, I think it was, they were praying for a revival, and people began to speak in tongues. And they hadn't seen that in a long time. It was something that kind of died off. And they're like, whoa, what? They weren't asking to speak in tongues. They were just praying that God would move. We don't know what God's going to do. He's crazy. Have you met the, have you read part of the, like any of the Bible and walk away and go, yeah, that, that dude's all right. That guy's sane. Like, no, God is just like, I do whatever needs to be done to sanctify my children, to teach them about me. I, 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 I talk to a fig tree and make it die so that they might know more about me. That's insane. But that's the God we serve. It's not insane to him, obviously. We're the ones that need to catch up, but. But we don't know what he's going to do. We don't know how he'll bring revival. We don't know how he'll make us alive again. We just have to know we want it, and we should be busy praying and reading the word and being together. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Jesus, we don't know what we're asking for, but we know something's wrong. We know that it's not an us-against-them mentality, that we are as much a part of the problem as anybody, as the people in Nehemiah's day knew, as the people in, in, in the book of Acts knew, that it's not just one person or one group of people that's bringing us down. It's all of us that need each other and need repentance. We come to you, Lord, admitting that we are dead. We, we're like the, the, the shallow ground, or excuse me, we're like the seed planted in the thorny ground. So many things have come up to choke your word out of our life. But Father, we're asking for a miracle that you take the rock-filled soil of our hearts or the path-beaten soil of our hearts or the thorn-infested uh, soil of our hearts and change it into the soft, fertile soil that as your word is planted in the soil of our heart, it would bear much fruit, six, 30, 60, and 100-fold that we would be changed from the inside out, that we would look upon the events of this last week and not be panicked, to not be scared as if somebody's losing or winning, that we would just look upon the landscape of our nation and just say, man, things really are getting worse before they ever get better with you, Lord. I pray that you would help us to not just have revival in our church, but revival in our homes, that we would, as, as husbands and wives, pray with one another and, and read the word with one another, that you'd help us men to, to love our wives as, as Christ loved the church and that you'd help our wives to respect their husbands as, as the church is called to revere Christ. That children would love their parents and parents would love their kids. That you would give us patience to do just that. That we would see the church not as the world portrays it, but see the church as your word portrays it. The living family, the kingdom of God, with you as our head. I praise you, Lord. We don't know what we're asking for. All we're asking is that you would change things for us. Make us alive once again, that we may serve you, love you, and change Canastota and Sylvan Beach and Oneida and Wamsville and, and any place else we might go. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.